Hey guys, welcome to the Tech People Podcast. My name is Ken Coyne. I'm your host and founder, as well as head of technology at Ops Talent. I believe at the heart of any success story are the people who made it happen. Diversity, creativity, and innovation, when nurtured in people, can lead to an unbeatable formula. I created this podcast to share the experiences of some truly inspirational leaders on their journey to success. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, and welcome back to another edition of the Tech People Podcast. This week, I'm very excited to learn all about tech in Japan. I speak to Mark Einstein, who has been living in Tokyo for the last 10 years, where he is the Chief Analyst of Telecommunications and Digital Services at the ITR Corporation. Mark talks to us about his new book, which is called Tech Native Company, Seven Strategies to Survive the Digital Age. He explains how a virtual strategy will be the next big disruptor after digital, as companies move to the mainstream use of VR and other virtual technologies. He also gives us a fascinating insight into the world of tech in Japan, where COVID is causing major changes in the way people work, but also opening up new opportunities for tech companies looking to sell their services and software there. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me. Oh, great to have you. I'm really looking forward to learning more about this book that you recently wrote. But before we start that, could you just give us a bit of a background about yourself, who you are, and what you're doing these days? Sure. So my name is Mark Einstein, and I'm the Chief Analyst for Telecommunication and Digital Services at my company, which is ITR Corporation. ITR is a Japanese IT research and consulting firm, and so we mostly deal with large Japanese companies, and we try to help them with their IT management issues. I Personally, have been in Japan for just over 10 years now. Prior to that, I was in uh, Singapore and, and Hong Kong, but I'm originally from the U.S. Wow, that's amazing where you end up in life, isn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's on my list. I'm looking forward to visiting Japan at some stage welcome, in the future. Welcome anytime. Great. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that. And I will be giving you a call. Listen, tell us, so you wrote a book recently. Tell us, uh, the great for the listeners, you can just tell us first of what's the name of the book. And describe why you wrote it and uh, tell us what it's about. Sure. So, as I mentioned, I work for an analyst firm that oh. basically deals with large Japanese companies in Japan and their IT issues. And, you know, especially given all the massive changes that have happened with COVID-19, six other analysts and myself decided to team up and, and write a book. And so okay. the book is called Tech Native Company, Seven Strategies to Survive the Digital Age. And so this is designed for Japanese companies because I think that we've seen, I would argue more so than in other countries, a massive shift in attitudes about digital transformation and, and things like working from home and e-signatures have, have really come out of, of nowhere and have suddenly become very, very widely not only accepted, but demanded in Japan. And so wrote this book to try to help Japanese companies, you know, maybe rethink their IT planning and rethink their IT strategies. Yeah, just give us a bit of background there. So in terms of the technology space in Japan, is it a case that they're requiring in terms of digitalization, were they quite behind or was it just cultural aspect of it? So it's to me, it's it's quite a fascinating topic. So I think that, you know, when we think of Japan, everyone thinks of the high tech aspects like robots and yeah. you know, the first the first 3G networks and Stuff like that. 
But Japan can also be amazingly low tech. So work from home for almost all companies was very much considered taboo before Corona. Another thing that we have in Japan that are very common is something called a hanko, which is basically like a, a medieval seal that you need to physically stamp to officialize a document. I read that up to 40% of Japanese companies could not close during COVID because they had to do these physical stamps, which is just wow. insane. But our, you know, one of our ministers, you know, in the media a few days ago and said, you know, this, this hanko has to die. <laughs> and so now there's this big movement about e-hankos, uh, you know, which is basically electronic signature. So while I think, you know, digital transformation, I think you'd agree, has gotten a big boost all over the world because of mm. COVID. I would argue that in Japan, it has, you know, especially broken down some very serious barriers. Well, interesting. So what, what impact do you think that will have for companies dealing on Japan and technology in general in Japan? So as I mentioned, work from home is is the big one. And, you know, almost overnight, work from home became something that was acceptable. And to me, that showed that it was never about technology. It was about corporate culture. And I think what we're seeing is, for example, Fujitsu, you know, which is uh, maybe the, the fifth largest IT provider in the world in Japan has already announced that they're getting rid of 50% of their physical offices. Wow. Uh, forever. So I think we're going to, so work from home is very much here to stay. And I think that's probably the biggest impact, which is going to impact, you know, real estate and uh, transportation, where people live. I myself moved out of Tokyo due to the, the pandemic. My own company, we've downsized our office by 50% permanently wow. and made work from home a, a permanent option to all employees. And such a thing a year ago, if we were talking, was, was unimaginable. It's incredible. So what are the challenges that these companies are facing? I mean, you've obviously written a book on this subject. so Right. So what I argue in the book is that the term digital transformation, which we call DX in Japan, I, I think that this concept has been around forever, basically. Digital transformation is really, in a Japanese context, a lot of it has to do with going paperless. Because, you know, I remember going to seminars and conferences 10 years ago about the end of paper. But paper usage is keeping up every year for the last 10 years, despite this. So that was a nice concept, but it never really happened. But what I argue is that after digital, the next step is going to be virtual transformation. So I try to coin this term called VX, which I think will come after DX, because I think, you know, work from home is just tip of the iceberg. Things like VR, digital twins, AI avatars, chatbots are going to be the next big wave that companies, you know, change. It's not, you know, I think most companies are fairly digital now, not all of them. And now companies are trying to become virtual. Wow. And what are going to be the challenges in, in becoming V and getting towards that VX? Right. So I think there are many. I mean, one, these are new technologies for most IT departments. So just really a, a basic understanding. We get a lot of questions from our companies. You know, they've said, for example, we've seen other companies use VR for like training and prototyping, but they are wondering, is VR really ready? Because if you use VR, it, it's still a bit clunky. And, and yeah. you know, we're in the, the, the 1G era of VR. So, you know, is this ready? 
But we're getting a lot of inquiries about things like digital twins, chatbots. I'm working now with one of the big phone companies in Japan that is very seriously considering moving all of their customer shops into VR. Because right. what they've discovered during COVID-19 is that, you know, not having your retail stores open is very profitable. <laughs> and, and that is something that they're exploring. And, you know, they realize that this technology might not be quite there, but the, the planning is, is very much in full swing. Wow, interesting. How about the cultural aspect of it then? A company set up to manage that, make them work, manage people remotely and... I mean, it sounds like from what you're telling me, everybody's been working from home up until this period of time. This is a challenge. And, and you know, as someone that has lived in Japan for 10 years and, and I've worked for a, a big Japanese company, you know, it's interesting because the traditional way that people's performance was generally measured was how long you were in the office all day. Right. You know, the, the, the rule of thumb was that you don't leave the office until your boss leaves. And so that's why you, I'm sure you've seen statistics about, you know, how we're the highest in number of hours in OECD countries, but lowest in productivity. That's gone out the window. So I think now it's, you know, we need to rethink about how staff is, is evaluated and, and it's going to be a big challenge for sure. Yeah. Because I mean, trust is a big thing in this space and you need to have trust. I don't know. The mindset in terms of trust in Japan is like, in terms of the technology that goes with it. I mean, but I mean, in terms of you know development and that kind of stuff, is it like very much agile based development and things like this? Is it all kind of is that all kind of standard, or is it still quite behind in terms of that development? So no, so software engineering is again something that that Japan has a very different take on. I think what. And we could do a whole other podcast on this, but I'll, I'll <laughs> maybe we will next in future. Definitely. Yeah, maybe. We, I mean, maybe we should. But so in Japan, basically, students go to university and then they are hired by a big company, irrespective of their major. And once every year, there's a new batch, and once that batch goes through the general training, they are assigned to certain divisions. You could end up in accounting or marketing or sales or IT or production or operations. And it doesn't really depend on your major. And so basically people find out that they're going to be software engineers after they've graduated university, which wow. is completely different than how we would Incredible, yes, yeah. in Europe. And, and I think that that is why we are quite weak in areas like machine learning and, and AI, right. where you would have, you know, in the U.S., you'd have someone that, that got a master's degree in science and, yeah. and, and lives and, and breathes this kind of stuff. We don't have that in Japan and we never have. And I think that's why we are weaker than some places. And I think that's why there's people realize that they need to do something about it. But that is one reason why in Japan, the two things you can do for work without speaking any Japanese are teaching English and IT. Okay. Skills are just in, in such high demand that they, they will put up with it. But I also think that there is going to be increasing demand for outsourcing. And I think that's how you and I originally met yes, around that. Yeah. But yes, the attitude towards specialization and software engineering is, is very different here. Japan, Inc. still traditionally loves a generalist as opposed to a specialist. And this becomes 
problematic for areas where you need to be incredibly experienced and focused. Uh, yeah, because it amazes me because more and more I get into software development. I mean, you, you have to have those specialist skills. You know, designers, you know, testers, developers, different te- technologies. And, and I think this is where the, the Amazons and the Googles of the world, you know, are the kings. Whereas you could yeah. argue the Hitachis and the Sonys and the Fujitsus were the kings in, in the 80s. Yes. Um, so I, I do think that that has contributed to the, I would not say decline, but I would say stagnation. of, of Right. Very interesting, Max. So, so talk us through these strategies that you mentioned earlier in, in the book. Right. And so basically in the book, my section is arguing and it's titled, it's time to start planning your, your VX. And okay. so what I try to do in that book is to one, explain what I mean by VX. And, and actually I, I had this idea even before COVID and it, it was quite fortuitous that it came out around this time because I think uh, it'll be a little bit, people will be generally more open to the concept now that we're all remote. But so the first part kind of explains, you know, what are some of these things that you can do, you know, talking about how, for example, in the United States, Walmart has sent an Oculus headset to all of its stores and managers of the stores use a VR program and they learn how to use a new display before it comes into the store or flight attendants you know, can practice the emergency door procedures on a new plane in VR. So they don't need to be in the plane and the plane, you know, the COVID would be flying. So, you know, digital twins is another one where digital twins were typically only used in heavy industry like jet engines is is it Rolls Royce is a classic example or NASA uses them or heavy manufacturing oil and gas. Digital twins are now coming so could I just ask you one question just for the benefit of the audience? What, sure. What's your understanding of a digital twin? Ah, sure. So a digital twin is basically a digital replica of a real object. And so basically what that means is you could have, for example, uh, an engine on a, a jet engine on a 737 could be filled with hundreds of sensors, which would be showing temperature, oil pressure, you know, stress, all, all this kind of stuff. And basically because you have information from those sensors, you can make a model of that engine and look at all this data and run simulations. So you could know when it needs to needs maintenance on certain parts and, and things like okay. that. So that's what I mean by digital twin. But we're now seeing digital twins of, of buildings, of office buildings, to see what the power consumption is like, even uh, forestry. So they could like see how the trees are growing and, and all that if they're ready to be harvested in, in real time. Is another example. Yeah, nuclear power plants have them. I think one day even people will have digital twins. I think we will all. Really? <laughs> yeah, sure. All the maybe if you have an Apple Watch or, or some yeah. kind of health tracker, you know, it can track your heart rate and your glucose and your blood oxygen, and you could have a model of ten, and you know that would basically see if if you're healthy and and maybe be able to detect something if something's wrong. It would be able to tell you before you even knew it. Wow. Yes, it's incredible how the tech is evolving over the future. It, it is. This is very, very exciting times. So, yes, so that's the digital twins. And what else do we have then, Alex? So, I think another thing that, you know, so I think VR is not entirely, but largely going to be the world of virtual transformation. I think, you know, 5G is coming into VR, which yes. means no more wires, which is, is good. 
So Vodafone in the UK recently showed that off. And, and there's one VR headset with 5G that just came out of Taiwan a few weeks ago. So the industry's moving. But another one I would say is, is avatars. So basically, you know, in a virtual environment, Right now, you know, I'm sure you use and, and a lot of us use chatbots when we're yeah. talking to, to customer service and, and chatbots are getting a lot better. They're not maybe where they need to be, but eventually chatbots, I think, are going to become AI avatars. Okay. So basically, if, if you're logged into VR, you'd be looking at, at a person who, you know, with AI and, and machine learning and things like that could basically be your personal digital assistant. So you would be able to, to talk to this person and do things, you know, book a flight for me, book a hotel, book a dinner, and, and the person would, would just, person, quote unquote, would just do it. But I think that that is going to go even further. So I think in the next few years, you know, you could be learning a foreign language with an AI virtual digital teacher that's not a real person, but is your teacher or someone at a retail store. You could go into a, a virtual retail stop and, and the shop assistant's not going to be a real person. It's going to be an, an AI avatar that will look very lifelike and perhaps even know you. And uh, well, I think all sorts of industries are going to be very, very disrupted by this. And uh, well, again, a lot of this stuff is arguably bordering on science fiction. Um, yeah, I'm straight out of the movies. Yeah. But in, in the next few years, this is coming. And, and I do work with companies in Japan who are very much trying to make this happen. So if companies going down this route, what are the steps? I mean, do you recommend going down this route? What to take? So What do they need to be looking at? Right. So looking at it from a very pragmatic approach, yeah. you know, I think most big companies now have a, a DX roadmap with, okay. you, know, a, you know, what they want to do and when they want to do it. So I, I do have some suggestions and some examples of how to make a VX roadmap. I think the first thing that you have to do, and you had to do this for, for DX too, but is you really need to identify the pain points in the organization. Right. So for example, a lot of the reason that I'm talking about avatars and things like that in Japan is not only because it's much more cost effective and perhaps a better consumer experience, which I think you could argue, but it's that in Japan, we have a population shortage. So yeah. it is becoming incredibly difficult uh, yes, okay, I understand. To, to hire, in, especially in more menial jobs. And so I think that's a big push. So for example, for, for companies, uh, so right now, English teaching, you know, the English teachers can't come to Japan. So uh, yes, of course, they can't travel. So, yeah. and yeah, sure, we can do Zoom. Zoom has its limitations. Yeah. I think VR would offer a more interactive way to learn and, and to you know, work together. So I think companies need to identify you know, where their pain points are. You know, making a prototype, like a physical prototype, like a model tooling, can cost around $50,000 to make a, a physical product. But now you're all working together in VR. You can just do that with software. And you can all collaborate on one model of, awesome. of a yeah, product, and that costs almost nothing. So I think you need to map out your organization. I think you need to look at you know where the pain points are, and then I think you need to start thinking about ROI. And like I said, there there are a lot of VR companies that are offering these kind of services. Meetings, prototyping, English teaching exists. Yeah. Digital wins exists. And if you're really serious about it, 
I would start talking to some of these companies and, and see what they can offer you in terms of a POC. And then, you know, try to build a business case. Yeah, because I've done a couple of recent podcasts. One was around uh, the whole AR and VR space. Another one was around training and the use of VR, but an incredible, really an innovation manager. And the results that he achieved by using VR in the company in terms of engagement with the people, feedback. Already happening. And, and yeah. another aspect in Japan that, that might be interesting if, if you're interested in that topic is that because of the labor shortage, if you go to a convenience store in Japan, or if you go to an izakaya, which is a Japanese style pub restaurant, especially in the big cities, almost none of the employees are Japanese. They are mostly from China or Vietnam or a few other countries. And so what they could do with this VR training is they could train people on how to use the cash register, or how to make a drink in their own language before they even come to Japan. They could already know how to restock the shelves and, and do all this kind of stuff before they even set foot in the country. And that is a technology that is available today. Wow. So, yeah, very, very exciting. And the cost, is it still expensive at the moment? I mean, or not? So it is early days. So I think, you know, it, it's coming down. So I saw news, I think this morning that, that the new Oculus is shipping for $299. So that's way lower than it would have been a few yeah. years ago. And a lot of these companies that are doing these kind of things are startups. And so if you are a big company, they're probably looking for publicity and some trophy clients that they can you know, tell other people about. So I think that there is room for cooperation. And I think at least POCs can be done for, we're talking about thousands of dollars only. So nothing, okay. nothing, nothing, crazy. nothing crazy. At the moment, I mean... Is this VX? Is a focus on specific industries, specific companies, do you believe? Or can it be, you could apply it to pretty much any organization? So I would argue that it could apply to any company because okay. I think a lot of the VX initiatives are internal. So things like training, things like even um, employee health and, and wellness can be done in, in VX. I think internal meetings. So these are things that all companies do. But then there are industry-specific examples, like the airline example. Um, if you do prototyping, I think the events space is another one. So in Japan, you might know that that baseball is our number one sport here. Okay. And so one of the mobile companies came up with a 5G service where you can virtually attend the games of one of the teams. Cool. In VR, because we can't, you know, we can't go to concerts and yeah. and sports things because of because of COVID. So I think that you know there there certainly are industry specific use cases. There certainly are industries I would say that are more suitable to be an early adopter, but I think a lot of it is internal. And so I think you know, almost any company could at least look at it for something. I'm pretty confident in that. The book sounds like I mean I know you mentioned the book is is targeted towards Japan, but it sounds like it could be applied to any country or industry, but lessons in it. So if it sells well, you you might see a, a more global post. <laughs> I do believe that, I mean, Japan is just what, what I do every day, but, but I think you're right. I think that, you know, you also might know that Japan is not as powerful with startups compared to the US or, or Europe or you know, some other parts okay. of the world. And, you know, a Class lot of- Why is that? 
Oh, so that's another podcast. You know, this is again largely cultural. So basically, you know, like I said, what you, you do is you work like crazy in high school, go to university, get hired by a big company, and you work there for the rest of your life. Right. That's a traditional story. It's changing. But going to a startup was not seen as a legitimate thing to do until very, very recently. Okay. So when I first moved in Japan, you used to hear stories about parents who would freak out if their children joined a startup. I heard stories from founders. They would have to have a meeting with the parents and explain that this is a, a legitimate idea and, and things like that. Wow. So again, plus, you know, we, we also had a very big, powerful company, which can, can make it hard for startups to, to get off the ground. It's also very mm-hmm. tremendously up. But the attitude is, is changed in the last few years. So we are catching up, but all of the cutting edge startups that I see in this space and frankly, every space are mostly in the US and, and Europe. And, okay. and so a big part of my job is I try to find these kind of companies for my Japanese clients to, to collaborate with. Okay, good. Cause I just want to say there must be massive opportunity for companies oh. outside of Japan to into the market. Yes. But again, it, it can be very difficult for traditional Japanese companies to work with startups in places that you know might have a very different business culture. And fortunately for me, that's where I come in. Um, hmm. That's what my business does. So yeah, uh, okay. So you work with the companies outside of Japan and introduce them to the Japanese clients, and you kind of work yes. in a relationship. Yes. So I, you know, again pre-COVID, I I usually go to the big trade shows like GSMA Barcelona and CES in Las Vegas. And I scout um, and I'm given criteria by my customers of what they're looking for. And I try to find it. And then sometimes I'm, I'm asked specifically to find a company like, for example, this digital twin company scouting I've, I've done recently, 3D avatar scouting I'm actually doing right now. Okay. Yes, there is a massive. Brilliant, brilliant marks. Listen, to close, just close up because uh, I'm conscious of your time. Um, tell us, just, could you just remind us again the name of the book, how people can uh, access it, um, and also how they can reach out to you, please? Sure. It is called Tech Native Company, Seven Strategies to Survive the Digital Age. It is available on Amazon. And in terms of contacting me, I'm pretty open and I'm on LinkedIn under Mark Daniel Einstein, my name. So if you do have a question, I'd be happy to chat to with any of your, your viewers. Great, Mark. Thank you. And I, I agree. I can concur because I did reach out to you and you've been fantastic and very helpful. So I'd recommend anybody to reach out to Mark and have a chat. That's great. There's some fantastic insights in Japan. Really interesting. And we're definitely going to do another podcast. Thanks so much for having me.